You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This is To Stir With Love with Rabbi Yitzchak Kolokowski. I'm Avram Kivalevich. Tales from Prison. Well, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak, you know, we wanted to do this show yesterday, and you said to me, Rabbi, let's wait for to see how the pardons come in. Because, as expected, like presidents, uh, the minig uh, of presidents on their last day, although Trump wasn't Mekayim the minig of sitting at the inaugural of his successor, but he definitely did uh, fulfill the minig of pardoning a whole slew of people. Um, I think 143, I believe. And true to the, let's call it uh, honestly, true to the uh, fealty and connection that he has to the Jewish people, Jewish donors, and in general, the way he was open to uh, appeals from, from well, we'll talk about from in a minute, of Jewish people. There's a lot of Jews on that list, including a couple of quite famous ones, right? Um, uh, Shalom uh, Weiss, uh, uh, Leo Weinstein, um, and um, as you said, he definitely came through for a number of them uh, commuting their sentence. Yep. Yeah, I I, uh, I got a phone call today sitting at work in the prison from one of our chaplains who recently moved away and he retired and before he served us in Waymart, he was actually a federal a prison chaplain, so he a Protestant minister, and, and he had Shalom Weiss as one of his inmates and had quite a few uh quite a few interactions with him and he called me, you know, to say, Oh, I, you know, you heard the news that, that Shalom Weiss was let out of jail. So and actually Shalom Weiss was in there is a uh there is a federal prison right next to um right next to it, Waymart, Waymart's a state prison, and then there's the federal prison, Canaan, because there's the borough of South Canaan, Pennsylvania, which is, borders Waymart, and so it's uh, Eretz Canaan. Yes. And and they have a, a federal prison there, which is a, a penitentiary. It's a very, uh, <coughs> very tough prison. They have some really, really tough characters there. It's very different than Waymart, where we very low security in, in Canaan. It's very high security. They have, I think, actually some Al-Qaeda terrorists there. They also have a camp there, but Shalom Weiss having a sentence of over 800 years for a white-collar crime, uh, he was um, he was actually in the penitentiary there in in Canaan for a while, and then, and that's where this uh, chaplain, this wow. Reverend Johnson, so knew what, him what, as, what, as well as his... in uh, in another prison in Pennsylvania, where another penitentiary. What was his crime, uh, Shalom Weiss? Again, I didn't read up on it, but what was his crime? He says white collar, eight hundred years. It was it, was it. It wasn't his first time around, so uh, it was almost like a, I don't think it was three strikes you're out, but I think it was two strikes. Uh, you're out was kind of uh, and he had was defrauding. Is that what it was? I believe I, I don't I don't really know all the details, but I think it was something to do with defrauding people connection with uh, maybe with nursing homes or something. I don't remember exactly what the okay. what the what the situation was, but I, I don't I didn't really follow the case that much, but I know that he he has a nephew, a, a younger man 
who's 25 years old and himself is a, a successful business person, a CEO of his own company, and he was doing a lot of asconas to try to get his uncle out, and it seemed like he was matzliach with his uh, with his asconas. Right, now this was so. Weiss received a commutation, right? He didn't receive a, a commutation, com- not a pardon. Exactly. He did not receive a pardon. No. Let's let's. Look, I hope that our facts are right. Weinstein got a pardon, though. I think Weinstein was wine, or he also only a commutation. I think Elio Weinstein also only got a commutation. I, I my understanding was that about half of the people uh, who were announced were commutations, and about half were pardons. And I believe most of the pardons were actually people who are not in prison currently. They they're people who either served their sentence or are still facing, uh, were, were going to be facing um, criminal proceedings and were uh, now exempt from that, at least on the federal side, because of their pardons. You know, they could, they could still, I know, uh, I think Steve Bannon was one of the ones who received a pardon he, before his trial has even begun. And so part of the discussion is he's now... Potter, he's exempt from anything that's federal, but he could still be liable in in state courts. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, uh, the, the it's interesting. The, the president he can't wipe the slate clean. What he can do is because he's part of the federal branch of the executive branch of the federal government, he can he can cl- wipe the slate clean there. And, uh, will that hold true even if Trump is impeached? The action still holds even if he's impeached. It doesn't go with Mafreya. And say that uh, that he that what he does that we can relook at his pardons, can they? Can they? No. Can, can Biden decide to reinstate the, these these uh, these sentences or uh, decide no, that he, he's? You can't, right? Absolutely not. No, it's it's something that it's a complete power that the president has. The pardon power is probably the strongest power. I know. A few weeks ago, we were discussing. You know, is it a shtikla chil Hashem? You know that there's so much askonis of all the things we could be working on and trying to make shtadlonis about. Why is it about the pardons? And the reason is because the power that the president has is so incredible when it comes to pardons. Uh, there was even discussion that he would be pardoning himself. Now that would be something that would have been controversial if he would have pardoned himself. He could, uh-huh. if he could have, he could have made some kind of a deal with, uh, with. Um, with Mike Pence to, to maybe to, to, uh, in other words, he should have resigned. He could have resigned. Pence as president could have given him a pardon. Yeah. But I don't think that was going to happen anyway. And, and, and anyway, the pardon would not do away with the, with the impeachment. The pardon would only be connected to, and, and not, and not even with the conviction of the impeachment, it would only be in relative to any, um, you know, jail time or whatever that, I understand. Would be. I, I, understand. I, I think if he would have pardoned himself or sought that, it would be kind of admitting guilt, and I don't think he wants to do that. Yeah, let, you know? let, let's just explain to our listeners something that we talked about before we started recording, that there is a, a salient difference between the pardoning and being commuted. In both cases, I guess you're free. The only difference is is that you're that's on your record, correct? A commuted sentence still means you're a convicted felon. It's just that you have served your time. And the 18 years or the 20 years that uh, Shulam Weiss served will count uh, Kenega the 880 years or whatever it was. But he's right. still 
goes. That was out the same thing with Rabashkin. Rabashkin, you know, he had 27 years. He served seven years, and it's it, he's still he's still a convicted felon. He's just he's he wasn't uh, so, so, he wasn't pardoned. He was commuted. So obviously, being free is, is crucial. <laughs> Let's give Trump a karasatayv. And again, you can look at those names. I just looked at them briefly before we started recording. Seemed like there was a number of uh, of, of Jewish people there. Um, as I said before, you know, um, and I I've corrected myself. And I once heard from Rav Schwab that to use that term from people, especially who are convicted and are you know guilty and they just are serving a, a too harsh of a sentence you wouldn't necessarily use the word from again you could say a person is a balchuva he becomes from again but the fact that somebody comes from a religious home and does something that is despicable or wrong that we have to condemn we shouldn't use that appellation of from from comes from the old german which means holy something that's a frimer someone that's something a, a holy thing that's what it means in old german and if somebody really um and you can really say it about almost, I guess, 80% or 85% of the people walking around the streets. But maybe we should be careful about saying a from person in jail. Because well, I, I, I remember I had, I had an interview with the New York Board of Rabbis to serve as a prison chaplain in, in New York State. And so I was there in Rabbi Potasnik's uh, office, and he had on Zoom before the epidemic came out and before everybody knew what Zoom was, uh, he had the chaplain up in Albany, who uh, you know, a, a actual from rabbi, and he and I, I mentioned something about you know, uh, catering to the from inmates, and then Rabbi Potasnik said, you know, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't call it a from inmate, and he, that was one of the arguments that he had with with this chaplain. If if he's an inmate, he's not from. So then uh, I mentioned something I remember hearing in in yeshiva. Back in Yushalayim, one of the one of the Magide Shir there that I, I believe it was either Shinavarov or the Sanzarov said that the the word Frum is a is Roshitavis for feel rishus and Vainiga mitzvahs. A, a lot of wickedness and very few mitzvahs. So uh it's <laughs> it was, unfortunate. Obviously, I think it's a, a reflection, you know, uh, the Shinavar's wit is the reflection of the same anger that Rav Schwab felt about how we throw that term around without recognizing what it really should mean. But but I think, you know, as, as we say, the, the the consequences are still severe for someone, even though he's out of prison, he's still limited in many ways, legally, uh, in terms of being able to vote, holding office, maybe even being hired in the police force or other things. Um, I know it, it could be, and again, I'm talking totally out of my book, it could be various states have different laws, but I think across the board, there is limitations for someone who is who has served time, even if he's a model citizen and his sentence is commuted. What do you think, Yitzchak, about this? Uh, about And we know there's been a, a, a lot of pushback about this, especially in the African-American community, where they, there's, the, there's the sense that there's many people who have been sent to prison incorrectly or being pushed into prison. Why should they be deprived, even if it's a felony or something that they've committed, why should they be deprived completely of their rights that they had beforehand, especially if in prison they serve the time and they seem to have... Uh, if not change completely, at least modify themselves. What's what's your take on that? Do you think that they sh- that they uh, should be restored completely to whatever they had? Well, you know, you bring up a very good point because you know the, the, this question of systematic racism leading to convictions, which uh, you know uh, 
if we're going to be intellectually honest, the, 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 our new president was really uh, a part of that systematic racism in the 1990s. He that was his that he was the one who made the crime bill that led to so many people, uh, you know, especially members of minority groups, African American community, being convicted, you know, for crimes and and having to to uh, suffer like this. So there certainly is what to discuss about uh, restoring rights. I, I believe, <clears throat> personally, I think it should be a process. I don't think it should be automatic. I, I know there's even discussion about giving people voting rights while they're currently incarcerated, which I think is, is, is rather ridiculous. Um, but uh, there certainly is discussion about doing that, or maybe even, uh, I think maybe some states actually do that. And, and, and the truth is, you know, they have the right to but, do that. But, but, but you I'm surprised. I'm going to push back right away. I mean, the very first time that we spoke, when you came on my uh, program on principle, we spoke about the idea of the compassion that's necessary. If we can't dangle to the prisoners the chance of complete rehabilitation, if they think that they're still going to have that stain, symbolic or whatever it is, um, isn't it right to say, you know, you could get out, and if you get out of this, you're going to go back, and this 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 will cause the person to want to work harder if he knows he's going to get a complete restoration, right well, away. Well, I don't I don't think it has to be right away. I think that hard work can can extend after the after the sentence is over, particularly when you have a lot of people when they're, they're not released at, at least in the state system, federal system, you don't have any parole anymore, but in the state system, you know, people, they're still on parole. They're, they're still essentially, you know, in prison just out on the street. So the, the, the process doesn't end the moment that a person steps out of jail. The fact of the matter is, you know, and I discussed that with, this chaplain today, you know, how do people deal with being rehabilitated back into society when they leave prison? And one thing that he mentioned was that it takes a lot longer in general, not just how the system works, but how society handles things and how things actually work with, you know, getting back, you know, when a lot of people, they have this plan, they think they're going to get out of jail and it's going to be uh, you know, r- right back to normal and better than before, and and uh, it's all over. And the fact of the matter is, no, it, the plans that they have take time, and that's part of reality. I think a lot of the reason why people wind up in prison is because they're living in a fantasy world, and they have to come to grips with reality. There is a, a, an aspect of of tough love there uh, that is compassionate, you know, and and that's something that we face not only upon people's release, but especially in our work as chaplains, you know, my, uh, the, the main full-time chaplain that I uh, supervise, you know, that's one thing I, and I'm, I tend to be, you know, a little bit more liberal than he is on a lot of these things, but I hear his point and I usually will agree with him at least half the time that, you know, we have to, you know, we, we are compassionate, souls as being members of the clergy and we do want to serve and we do want to help uh sometimes is is counterproductive when we hand uh these guys everything that they want in a silver platter you know well, we, but we if just... they've served Yitzchak, if they've actually been suffering in prison let's say in a canaan type of prison the way you yeah. described it they've done it 
Now, to now make them, when they leave, also jump through hoops with some sort of uh, crummy parole officer, you know, uh, you know, uh, constantly berating them. Um, it seems, you know, it seems like when is it going to end? You know, they've already they've already had the the pain. Uh, you know, let, let me balance this a little bit with with the Gemara. The Gemara talks about somebody who uh, kills Beshogeg. Uh, someone who kills, I'm not going to use accidentally because it's not an accident, as we know. It's a person who kills in a way that he was negligent about not taking precautions, involved in an activity, a situation where he was not completely aware of everything in his uh, surroundings, and therefore it's sort of like uh, unmeditated manslaughter or something like that. So, crime. Yeah. Yeah. So those people, as we know, the terror writes in a number of places, um, go to a place called Ir Miklat, a, a city of refuge. And when the person leaves the Ir Miklat with the death of the Kohen Gadol, um, the Gemara says he doesn't go back to the job that he held, the position that he had before. Of course, the Ir Miklat itself is a beautiful uh, description of what we call uh, rehabilitation, uh, yeah. a place where full of chaplains, full of Levium. Full of people right. that, uh, you know, medium-sized cities, uh, cities that are different than the, the type of hustle and bustle place where he probably, where he, he ends up killing somebody, uh, a place where the, the pace of life is different. And even though he can stay there for many years, he doesn't have the position that he had. And even when he gets out, he does not go back to the type of position that he had. Because Chazal understood, based on the Torah, that there was probably something wrong with his whole attitude, you call it living in a fantasy. The person who, who kills Bishogeg also, in a way, has a selfishness where he didn't think about the other people around him, obviously living in some uh, sort of similar type of egoist fantasy. And because of that, um, things need to change in the Ir Miklat, but also when he comes out, in order that we don't have recivi- right, the <laughs> recidivism of where uh, things, uh, once again, spiral back down into where he was before. So and, I can, I can see that. Just let me just finish. And, the, and that, that's but, but, an issue that, that we, you know, we are faced with, you know, the probably, probably the biggest, like you just mentioned, probably the biggest uh, cause of recidivism is going back to the same old town with your same old, you know, especially when we're talking about drug offenses and drug dealers and other addictive aspects when there's the triggers of being back in that same environment that really lead people to to go back uh to crime it's not only the institutionalized aspect there are people who want to get out who don't want to be back in prison but then they have that trigger they're in the old the old neighborhood and they know the old place where they could get that hit or whatever they you know they used to have and then and then they they're right back at square one and the so it is a process, even getting out, even once someone is out, it doesn't, it's not something that happens one, two, three. So there is a compassion in making it a process on the outside too, because it, it helps the growth and the maturity of, of, of these, uh, of these people and their rehabilitation, at least in my opinion. It's All right. So, but we definitely need a change to allow, because I don't know if it's in the books that even if they go through these hoops or you want to call it rehabilitation or process, but there should be something in the books that if you and, and it should be standardized. It shouldn't be left to the uh, you know to the whims 
of the uh, of of the parole guys. There should be a, a process where the person knows that he's working towards restoration and being able uh, to cast that ballot again. And it's going to mean a lot more to him, that prisoner, when he casts the ballot, when he can say, yes, I am a, 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 a pure citizen of this country again. I think that's something that we, you know, we have to work on. Um, you know, again, the the, 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 it sounds like very punitive to take away the, the right to vote. It sounds, I don't see it. In fact, I don't see the logic between, well, you know, if you, if you committed felony, like, you know, if you ripped off these people, what right do you have to decide who should be president anymore or who should be the Senator or who should be the Congressman? Not sure. Exactly. I don't see them. Why one is connected to the other. Um, He's going to, he's going to pay taxes. He's going to do all the other things that citizen citizens do when you deny him the right, which considers just the elevated right to choose and for the senator to actually represent him, that the senator is a shliach of him, that amount of shlichus you're taking away from him seems to me very punitive and, um, and, and hurtful. But again, look, you know, um, I understand that you represent the, the system, and, but maybe you can do a little bit to change that, because I think that would be a carrot that could help. Um, all right. I, I, the thing is, I don't know how much people really care. You know, is it's that the really symbolism, the Joe? It's the symbolism, yeah. right? Yeah, I hear. I hear. Look, Sorry. my daughter felt very excited about voting uh, in this election. It wouldn't have made a difference. It was in New Jersey. We knew that Biden was going to take Jersey. Um, voting is always a part of that, you know. I, I, uh, well, that, it, it was the same thing for me. You know, when I turned 18, I, I was very excited to vote. But the, I think that the Hamein Am, just to be realistic even a lot of my friends who talk about politics all day and then i asked them oh what it wasn't even worth it i was like and to me the symbolism means a lot you know and i was very angry about people in georgia saying oh there's no point in even voting because it's already rigged i was like it's if if you don't vote then it's yeah then it then then you definitely lost but that's uh well here i think you have to blame the president uh, especially people who who, you know, just to be honest, you know, the average person who winds up in prison, I don't think, I, I, I don't know if they even voted before they they got, they were in prison and if they're going to vote after. The, most people in America don't vote, you know, it's not. Uh, yeah, that might have been sort of changed a little bit this time around. Yeah. All right, let's go to the, um, as we say, not the videotape, as Warner Wolf used to say, um, a great Jewish uh, uh, I wouldn't call him a sportscaster, but I guess he was a, a Jewish, what did the British call them? A news reader, right? A sports reader. He would tell you the sports. As Warner Wolf would say, let's go to the videotape and kinoscope and cinephiles and talk about what sort of, um, what is this uh, discussion that we're having? What is it? What does it stir within you in terms of uh, suggestions for our uh, tremendous body of listeners uh what sort of movies or tv shows or programs or whatever songs does this uh, indicate for you well the, the, this is this is a very you know big uh subject there are a lot of movies and tv shows i remember the first time i even heard the word xcon I, it was uh, i don't remember which tv show it was but it was uh i don't know i thought it was maybe uh episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show and, and Rhoda was dating an ex-con or another 
or someone else was, or it was an episode of Perfect Strangers, or I don't remember. Uh-huh. But it was <laughs> that's I don't remember. It's, Perfect it's Strangers was the one with Balky and uh, his cousin. Yeah, they they came to, uh, to one, one of them. Of I think uh, one of them was Jewish. I think the um, the the the. The American one was Jewish, right? Yeah, Pinch- or maybe Pinchot was Jewish too. Maybe the Pinchot is a, is a nice Jewish name. Maybe they were both Jewish. Yeah, maybe. I don't remember. I, I, I know I, a lot I, of the Mary Tyler Moore shows. Yeah, sort of ringing a bell with Valerie Harper, of course, a non-Jew playing a Jew. By the way, I met Valerie Harper. I had a very nice 25, 30 minute conversation with her. She oh, came wow. to she came to speak at the at the at the um, at the school I was teaching at. She, of course, played Golda Meir. In um, in uh, in a filmed version of uh, Golda's Choice, I think it was called, right? Where uh, she talks, you know, where she plays Golda, in terms of using the nuclear option. And I had a, a very nice conversation with her about how she advanced uh, uh, the the sense of Jews in in television, because yeah. you know it was clear she was Jewish. But she was just a regular character. She didn't have to necessarily uh, eat bagels or, or or every joke didn't have to be about ham or or Jews. Yeah, she, it wasn't it wasn't Mrs. Goldberg in the in the old. Uh, yeah. Even though for that for that era, it, the Goldbergs also raised up the uh, the it, view. It of was Jews. almost a normal thing. Yeah, she was Jewish and um, and she was a character, and that meant a lot. Having a character clearly a Jew, identifiably a Jew. Uh, again, Nancy Walker whether she actually accurately portrayed the average Jewish mother or not, did a decent enough job as a, yeah. she was of course not a Jew either, but, um, but um, Valerie Harper retained a very strong connection to Judaism by playing that role. Yeah. But I don't remember that uh, episode, but go ahead. What we'll look it up. I'll, I'll have to look it up perhaps and spend it. Yeah, it's probably a different show and it's just, my memory is, is failing me, but. All right, go ahead. Come on. Yeah. Come on. It's as far as you know, the old, the ultimate uh, punishment, and and how can there be anything after that, is is of course capital punishment, which maybe we should do a show about at some point. Although I haven't had any first first hand uh, experience with. Uh, but then uh, there were. I'm a fan of the science fiction and horror genres, and there are two movies that come to mind about uh, after after an ex- execution and uh, still. Uh, you know <laughs> what's going on from there. So there was one, really probably one of the best of pre-code horror movies from MGM, which there was a bunch of good ones from that era. Was Mad Love, which was based on the French uh, book The Hands of Warlock, about a, a, a piano player whose hands are mangled in a train accident, and he is given the uh, they, they do a, a an operation where they graft on some hands that they had from an executed killer. And the killer was a, a knife thrower in the circus. And that's how he killed his victims. And uh, Colin Clive, who uh, lived a very short and uh, tragic life. Uh, he was famous for playing Dr. Frankenstein in the first two universal Frankenstein movies. And here he was an MGM playing uh, or uh, playing the, the piano, uh, the pianist in the movie and he has these hands from the killer that now he can't p- play the piano anymore, but he can throw knives pretty well. And, and there's a the character in there um, played by Peter Lorre, who is obsessed with um, with the fiancé 
of uh, of Colin Clive and uh, in the end, uh, you know, with, with whatever so, goes on there. So basically, the um, the the ex-con who actually <laughs> goes into reaches his just reward, his hands now become part of this pianist's hands, and he's he's now extracting revenge, right? From it would, the it would seem, yeah. But but in a certain sense, I guess you could say that he was. Uh, if, uh, I I don't want to give away the end of the movie, but I guess at the end he he it's there's a certain heroism from that from that trait, almost like how Chazal say, you know, if somebody is is born under the Muslim Adamim, they could they're going to be Shefich Damim, but they they can use that Koyach either criminally or or positively as a Sheikh or a Moil or something. So. And the, even though uh, there's a lot of tragedy from that, but there's also, uh, in the end, there seems to be some sort of, uh, I guess, her- heroic act from that talent that that is inherent in the hands of Warlock. They they remade that film a few times, actually. Yes, Peter I Lord. know. I'm familiar with it. And of course, we got, as, as, again, Peter Lorre, one of my favorite, uh, underappreciated as a Jew actor, really a, uh, uh, really a, a tragic story his whole hollywood odyssey is really quite tragic of course he is the serial killer in m um, yeah. but it, we talked about fritz lang of course uh i think last time or two times ago mm-hmm. that of course was uh using the peter Lorre, and peter Lorre actually felt his jewishness very much so although he i don't think he come out ever played a jew uh in any of his films but um uh really one of the greats great great just any any film Again, even watching Peter Warrior's Mr. Moto is is worthwhile. Um, what's your other film? M was a, an incredible film, though. That for that time, one of the first talkies. I think that was was that Fritz Lang's first talkie. M, could be. I it think could. it was, and and just you know when at a, in a year you know when most of the early talkies you know was a lot of talking, and and, uh, and it was. Uh, not very good. This that was an incredible film, but not. I agree. Not a, I agree. It's it's really a beautiful. It really has a very uh, incredible beauty to it as well, especially when the, um, you know, Laurie's uh, confession, when he says, "I couldn't help myself. You don't know who I am. You know, this is this is. I'm not a you know. This is. I need to do this." Which again, of course, is is, is extremely. Um, contemporary even today when we talk about people that are hounded by demons that that cause them to do terrible things okay what else besides a mad love what else i guess uh, along the similar vein there's a a low budget uh, horror science fiction movie with lon cheney jr called the indestructible man which really has a kind of a, a film noir almost like an episode of dragnet kind of quality to it but it's a story about a uh a, a convicted uh, murderer uh, who actually claimed his innocence, and uh, and when he was executed, before his execution, you know, he he told his lawyer, who kind of sent him up the river, that uh, he's going to take his revenge. And uh, when the scientists, when when the scientists were uh, doing some experiments with the the body of the the corpse of the executed uh, butcher Benton. Uh, they accidentally resurrected him, and then he 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 kills the uh, the scientists and goes on a, a, a killing rampage, killing all the uh, 
the people that really did him wrong because he was actually innocent and he he took his revenge and uh, and that was it was it was uh, yeah. a, a, and then he was guilty right <laughs> well, after yeah. after he kills everybody that uh, that was involved in his killing yeah. then he I guess. Well, so part of the story was he, he's called Indestructible Man. So in the, the name of the movie, it was because he couldn't be shot. He couldn't be he couldn't be stabbed. He, he had superhuman strength and they had to find a pretty uh, difficult way to, to, to kill him in the end because the the uh, the scientific method that they used to re- uh, resurrect him really made his cells uh, grow more. But the interesting thing was he after he's resurrected in the movie. He doesn't talk, and I think originally in the script he was supposed to be able to talk, but he had some kind of a, a sore throat or a cold or laryngitis. <laughs> so they just they, the whole movie I think was made in, in two or three days. So they just uh, he see. has a few lines at the beginning, Lon Chaney Jr., and then uh, he goes on to, uh, to to do the rest of the movie. Well, you know, him. I always think about Lon Chaney Jr. No, of course his father, Lon Chaney Sr., was of course the man of a thousand faces. He was the great silent film star. And you think about sons who had the juniors who went into their father's footsteps and never really measured up. Uh, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. is sort of a, uh, uh, to me, like a hack. I mean, it's true. You know, he, you know, uh, was there, was there any film that he made that was considered, you know, uh, really well, one of the great horror films? Uh, you well, know, not, not just horror. I mean, he was one of the great films was of mice and men. And then the and then I I think his portrayal of the Wolfman was was really Lon Chaney uh, Jr. Yeah, was really was really powerful. That was probably okay. I might be selling know. I might be selling him short. Yeah, I um, mean most after he played Lon Chaney Jr. was Lenny and of Mice and Men. Yeah. So yes, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That was and then uh, all right. I take it back, Lon. Wherever you are, don't come back as indestructible man to Kivalevich's house for. And I guess Lon Chaney Sr. He was in the uh, the Unholy Three, wasn't that about the uh, about ex-cons who had escaped and uh, went on to? Uh, I I don't think I've ever seen that. I think he made it both as a silent film and and as his only talkie, if I'm not mistaken. The un- the Unholy Three. The Unholy Three. Okay, so that's your, and you've got three unholies right there. You've got the unholy three. We'll throw that in. Indestructible man, and mad love. Mad love. Not the uh, not the one from the nineties, which I I I heard the title, but I don't know what it's about. But the the one from the (laughs) thirties. Okay. Well, mad love was actually a um, an episode of uh, of Batman the animated series. Which is really the the story of Harley Quinn and her fascination with uh, Mister J, the Joker. So that might be what you're referring to. That was a. Uh, um... No, there was a movie in the '90s called Mad Love. I think with oh, I don't remember who was in it. All right, I'm sure if we Google it, we're going to have a lot of yeah. openings. Okay, here's my three. They're all the Tsarashovichevan. They're connected to Ed. First one is. Um, the Earl of Chicago. Now, this has one of my, my one of my favorite um, actors in it. He's always he usually plays a um, a uh, a supporting role, but it's always full of. And this is sort of his. Oh, he, he he did play in a number of films as a as a lead, and that was Edwin Arnold. Not to be uh, 
uh, confused with Eddie Arnold from Green Acres, Edwin Arnold, um, sort of a, uh, a heavy set fellow. Of course, he was the villain in um, in uh, one of the films that we talked about. Of course, uh, the main villain together in, in in the film of Mister uh, Smith Goes to Washington. Um, now you know who I'm talking about. Of course, Edwin he was uh, uh, the uh, the star of The Devil and Daniel Webster. Yeah. Uh, playing Daniel Webster. But this is a film that he made with Robert Montgomery, who is, of course, the father of uh, the famous bewitched actress, Elizabeth Montgomery. Robert Montgomery um, uh, sets up, Ed, it's, the name of the film is The Earl of Chicago, as I said. He is a lawyer, a very smart lawyer, that Robert Montgomery ends up framing. And he has to spend seven years in prison. When Edwin Arnold uh, because of the frame, he ends up being in prison and he was innocent. He, he gets out of prison and he realizes he can't go to be a lawyer anymore. He's disbarred forever. He can never go back to practicing law. He can't represent the law. So who shows up when he comes out of prison? Montgomery, who was this uh, bootlegger and this uh, gangster who set him up. He said, look, you're one of the smartest guys I know, Doc, Doc Ramsey. You're going to be my... Um, you're going to be my uh, consigliere. You're going to run my businesses and I'll make you a lot of money. And he tries to make up to him the fact that he sat in prison for seven years, that if they go into partnership, he's going to live the life of Riley, making a lot of money in that position. Now, of course, what happens is, is that he ends up uh, a cousin of his or uh, ends up dying in England and he ends up inheriting uh, a manor in England. And that's how he becomes this Earl in, in England. Now, the whole plot here is, is that Edwin Arnold acts like he's taking this job that he now has because he can't get any other job since he's a ex-con. He's going to be his business manager. He's going to get uh, him to sign a power of attorney, giving him the rights, Edwin Arnold, to run the company. And then he's going to destroy the company, impoverish him and everything that, that, that he stands for. But it turns out, of course that Montgomery going to England discovers a more noble part of himself. And this is a great film. It's got Edmund, it's got Edmund Gwen in it before he put, put on the whiskers of Santa Claus. He plays the Butler Muncie. It's also got another great side player, Reginald Owen. Who I know you're familiar with from the Sherlock Holmes films Absolutely, yeah. and other places. So it's really a great film. Edwin Arnold is a very complex character and, um, it really showed the, the trauma of not being able, because he was an incredible legal mind, and where his frustration takes him because of what prison did to him. And Robert Montgomery does a great job, too, in terms of, and I don't want to spoil it for everybody, but there is a certain uh, uh, valid, uh, a validation and that happens to him. My second Ed, it's not Edwin Arnold, but we talked about him before, of course, um, Edward G. Robinson, uh, and um, a uh, a wonderful Jewish actor, um, Shiva boy, what? A Yeshiva Bucher, right? And we know the G is for Goldberger uh, Robinson. I guess maybe he was an anical of a rov. I'll call upon him. Edward G. Robinson was in a film. Of course, he was a great uh, star in the '30s. This is a film he made. I think it was 1947, possibly. Um, I-, I might have the date wrong. It's either 42 or 47. Um, it's, it's called, it's got Jane Wyman in it, who is, of course, the, um, 
um, it was married to Reagan. Um, and this film was called Larceny Inc. Uh, it shows up on TCM a lot. It's a film about an ex-con who decides to go straight in prison. That's Edward G. Robinson. Mm-hmm. His name is Pressure. What a great nickname. <laughs> Pressure, they call him. And it's got um, uh, the people waiting for me out the outside are a bunch of other ex-cons. One of them is Broderick Crawford, who, of course, had a great career in the 50s playing the ultimate uh, lawman in the Highway Patrol. But, of course, uh, Broderick Crawford is plays a complete numbskull, complete dumb-witted numbskull here. And together, um, they, with this fellow called, uh, I think it was Tom Brophy, and uh, also a great character actor. I might have his first name wrong. With Edward G. Robinson and Broderick Crawford, they decide that they're going to go, well, he's going to go legit. He's going to uh, he's going to own a racetrack. Turns out when he goes to the bank, because of his uh, record as an ex-con, he's not able to get the money, and nobody trusts him. So because of that, he decides he's going to turn to crime, and he's going to break into a bank. And the bank, of course, is next door to a luggage store that he purchases. And now he's going to drill and get go get into the bank. And that, of course, was the plot. Turns out, of course, that through Jane Wyman's interference, Jack Carson is in there as well, another great character actor. What happens is, is that uh, he sees that going legit means something. And he actually starts enjoying being a real businessman and making money and, and really earning it the proper way. So um, it's quite a little story there, again, of what happens what, when, when options are, are not open for you. And um, you know, the third ed uh, is Nicolas Cage, uh, a Nicolas Cage vehicle. And the ed here is Edwina, uh, played by um, Holly Hunter in the second film of the Coen Brothers, two nice Jewish boys from uh, uh, St. Paul, uh, Minnesota. Um, their film, Raising Arizona, which uh, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. And, uh, what happens in it, of course, Nicholas Cage is a fellow who keeps on getting arrested. He gets arrested so many times for on small offenses. He ends up falling in love or uh, romance happens between the policeman, who is always a policewoman in this case, who gets to know him, taking his picture and uh, I don't know if she ever arrests him, but she gets to know him through his uh, various imprisonments. And then he decides he's going straight. He's going to get married uh, to uh, his name is High. He's getting married to Ed, Edwina. And the only problem is they can't have kids. And because he's an ex-con, he's, they're rejected in terms of adoption. And therefore they get moved, you might remember the plot, to kidnap a quintuplet child uh, of one of the uh, of a uh, uh, Nathan Arizona Jr., who is actually the son of a great furniture magnet, and of course uh, they've got enough babies. Just go get me one of those twins, and of course tremendous hilarity ensues just with babies and and running. It's it's an it's an incredible uh, like a like a, um, a Roadrunner cartoon. It also has, of course, John Goodman. Uh, in a in a role where um, he hams it up, but really uh, to great effect, and that's again really three films that really show um, uh, what happens when we don't give uh, criminals their possibilities. 
uh, and what it might lead them to. And uh, <laughs> definitely the great, the stuff of, of great fiction. Um, it makes you really think uh, when you see these type of mistakes and these fantasies that they live in and, you know, what are some of the things we might've done that, you know, the paths we, the paths that we didn't take uh, that, uh, that we could have with the, as you said, Yitzchak before, uh, the type of influences, the type of situation. And I think that, um, you know, these films make us think about the horror that, that, that prison life uh, can imprint in you and, and the effect that it has sometimes very unfair about uh, what the way people relate to you on the outside. So that's it, my friends. Uh, we hope that uh, we can uh, share with you uh, some more positive uh, tales from prison with my good esteemed friend, Rabbi Kolakowski. Take care. Thanks for being with us this week, everybody. Be well. Good night. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 